If you would, turn to chapter 7 of Romans with me. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if, while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Let's stop there. This is the Word of God. As I look at your liturgy, it looks like you have at this time a prayer for illumination, and that would be good in a chapter like this. There's more to come in Romans chapter 7, so let me lead us in prayer before our God. Father, I ask that you would help us to understand your word today. Illumine our minds, convict our hearts, help us to be changed through the work of your Holy Spirit so that we might walk in your spirit and not according to the flesh. Father, as we read and as we grapple with difficult subjects that you raise in this chapter of Paul's letter, I ask that you would help us to be willing to set aside those things that aren't profitable for us. Help us to be teachable in our spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, for some of you, as you are reading along with me, Romans chapter 7, it may be that that first part surprises you. Verse 4 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him, Paul says, who was raised from the dead, that you should bear fruit to God. And the natural question that comes up is, why is God comparing the relationship of unbelievers to the law as a marriage. And Genesis 2.24 tells us that God intended marriage to unite two individuals and that this union is so important that Jesus says in Matthew 19.6, so then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let not man separate. And so the only thing that God intends that should separate two married people is death. And Paul says that when we were unbelievers, dead in our sins, that we were married to the law. And just as a man and a woman become one flesh and their relationship cannot be severed except by death, so a lost person is considered one with the law. And here's where the marriage analogy makes sense. As unbelievers, there was nothing we could do to sever our relationship with the law. We couldn't divorce ourselves from the law because only God had the power to remove us from that relationship. And how did he remove us from the law and its consequences? Well, here comes the amazing part. He widowed us. Actually, technically, he made the law a widower. In Christ, we died to sin 
and to the law. And Paul says that we died through the body of Christ, which of course is a reference to Christ's death on the cross. In chapter 6 of Romans, Paul writes that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death. And then in Colossians 2, Paul adds, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And then Paul goes on to say, In you being dead in your trespass and the uncircumcision of the flesh, He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So in these passages and others like them, Paul says that we were crucified with Christ, that we were baptized into the baptism that Jesus told the disciples in the upper room that he was about to endure on the cross, which was a baptism of wrath and death, and that the handwriting of the requirements that was against us, which would be the requirements of God's justice and wrath under the law, was nailed to the cross and wiped out. So when Christ died, you, believer, also died. Your marriage with the law was severed, and any authority and headship which the law once possessed over you was removed by the only one who had the authority to do so, namely God. And thankfully, Jesus did not remain in the grave. Nor did you. When Jesus rose, you rose. And here's where this analogy comes in. This idea of dying severed your bondage to the law. You are no longer married to the law, if you will. But like the woman whose husband has died, you are now released from the law and free to marry a different husband, namely Christ. Now, I want to make an initial point here because it's important. Why does Paul say that you got remarried? Many would answer that they got remarried for love. They were in a bad marriage to the law. God was merciful. That marriage was ended by death, and now they can marry for love. They love God. God so loved them that he sent his son to die for them. And it's not that that is untrue. As far as it goes, but a better, more complete answer is actually given by Paul in our passage in verse 4. He says, we were married to Christ so that we might bear fruit to God. And that is an important statement, not only by telling us of the blessing of marriage to Christ, but by implying what the bondage to the law could not produce. Namely, good fruit. And I want you to let that sink in for a moment. All of those who attempt to please God by the law cannot produce good fruit. How can that be? What does verse 5 say? For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. But now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And if we break those two verses down a little bit at a time, we first read, when we were in the flesh, means the time, pre-salvation, when we were 
and the word is enveloped or encased by the flesh. And Paul here uses the term flesh to mean the world systems and values as opposed to the values of the spirit. We were once in the flesh and our values were the world's and the devil's values. And Paul says that in that state our sinful passions, which elsewhere he summarizes as the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life were aroused. Aroused by what? Did you notice what Paul says in our passage? That they were actually aroused by the law. How is that possible? Well, if we understand that point, we will understand something key to this whole chapter and really to the entire Christian life. Does the law make us evil? Not at all. That is not what Paul is saying. We already know from other scriptures that we are born with a sin nature desiring wickedness all the time. Paul says that we were 100% dominated by the flesh and that we had sinful passions. That means we already had morally wicked hearts and the law did not cause that. But how does the law make those appetites worse rather than better? You think that with a rule book, so to speak, of how to live in a way that pleases God, that we would have everything we need and that we would get better, not worse. But sadly, that is not the case. When the law tells us that we should do something good, our sinful natures rebel and do evil instead. In fact, the more the law tells us to do, the more we rebel. The law is no more to blame than an x-ray machine is to blame for revealing a tumor. But the truth is that the good news, the good laws of God aggravate or increase our sinfulness. And the law actually makes a bad situation worse. You can already hear the objections. Well, what can we do? Are you saying that we shouldn't teach our children about morality? That it only will make them more sinful? That we shouldn't have rules in our home? Well, in one sense, yes, telling any unregenerate person about morality will only cause them to sin more. That's not to say that you shouldn't have rules. God does not remove his law. The law reveals sin. But what Paul is saying is that the law does not produce good fruit. It only increases the bad fruit. It has no power in itself, Christians, to produce anything. And the fact is that as long as you create and as you create rules in your home, it will cause your sinful children to sin more. The only way to produce good fruit is by being married to Christ and being led by His Spirit. And that's a hard one for us as parents because we want to keep sending our children back to the law without reminding them and pointing them to Christ that the only way that they will be able to do these things is out of a love for God. Not by learning more rules. Realize that the more reflective those rules are of God's law, the more likely they will be to incite greater rebellion in your children. That doesn't mean that you stop disciplining your children. God continues to discipline us, but it means that we don't keep pointing them back to the law by themselves or the rules by themselves, but we continue to point them to Christ. And because this is such an important point, Paul says it in a different way in the next six verses. 
but asks the obvious question. He does the same thing in other chapters in Romans. He writes, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? In other words, was it bad to be married to the law? And that's our natural question. The law incites greater rebellion, greater sin. It must be sin. But Paul says, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. I've recently been reliving the early days of parenting through my grown children. I watch them with their little ones, making sure they don't stick a knife in the electrical socket or touch hot burners or stand too close to the edge of the pool. They have to keep setting boundaries, whether it is by saying no or by physically keeping them from the things that would hurt them. And of course, the boundaries are for their protection. Listen to this verse from Paul in Galatians 3. Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being protected for the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law became our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. So the law was a tutor. The law was a parent that taught us what to do and what not to do for our own protection. You children may not always comprehend why your parents don't let you do certain things, just like you probably don't always obey. But most of you have learned to trust your parents, just like my grandchildren have learned to trust their parents. And in time, perhaps you will develop greater obedience, even to the point that you start to understand why your parents don't allow you to do certain things. And there will come a certain time, I pray, that you will want to do the right actions out of a desire to please God. Have you ever watched a rider hanging on for dear life on the back of a bull? When that bull swings its massive head and shoulders and sends the rider into the air and then into the sawdust, a cowboy's natural instinct kicks in and he begins to run. He heads towards the fence as fast as he can go, wishing for a second or two maybe that the fence wasn't there. But then after he, and sometimes with supernatural strength, right, leaps the fence sometimes in a single bound, finds it between him and 2,000 pounds of raging bull, he feels pretty good about that fence. Well, why should a rodeo cowboy love a fence? Because the fence isn't there to restrict the rider. It's there to restrain the bull. And that's what God's commandments do for us. They protect us. They put a barrier between us and that which would destroy us. But there's this caveat. In our flesh, we don't like fences. We didn't like commands as children, and the truth is we don't much like them as adults either. And you've seen plenty of toddlers who get upset when their moms or dads use words like no, can't, shouldn't, or must, and we aren't much better. We're all a bit like Esau, willing in our flesh to trade anything, even our birthright, for a plate of stew to satisfy our hunger of the moment. Our flesh cares nothing for happiness tomorrow or for true joy or peace of heart in the future. What it seeks is gratification now. And there is something about the sin nature that when it sees the fence, instead of making the smart decision and staying on the safe side of the fence away from the bowl, it prompts us to want to leap the fence and get back into the arena. 
Because when we do so, we're saying, nobody is going to tell me what to do or how to do it. And that's the legacy of our first parents. It's the long, cold shadow of Adam and Eve. If you see a sign on a door that says, do not enter, what's your first inclination? Most of us want to at least take a peek inside and see what all the fuss is about. If I see a detour sign, and we have a detour sign in the middle of our town where we live that has been there for months, I'm not overly excited about taking a five-mile alternate route around it. I think to myself, I'll bet they finished the work on Friday and just haven't turned, taken the signs down yet. I can drive through the section of road that isn't being worked on. Don't we think the same way? Look at verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandments, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. And that word dead here is it's probably not the best translation. Instead, we should read something more like asleep or dormant. When the law enters in, sin wakes up. In verse 9, Paul says that it revives. And what does sin do? It produces in us all manner of evil desires, but it does so through the law, interestingly. Augustine writes in his book, Confessions, how when he was young, he and a group of friends went into a neighbor's field late at night to steal pears. And children tried to envision the story of Augustine and his friends. They shook all the neighbor's pear trees in the orchard knocking down a large number of pears, more than they needed. They carried many of them off. They ate a few and threw most of the pears to the pigs. Why did Augustine do that? Was it the beauty of the pears? They were beautiful, yes, since they were part of God's creation, but that's not why he stole them. He had others of similar beauty at his own home. Was he hungry? And needed something to eat. Well, that wasn't it because he and his friends threw most of the pears away to the pigs. Did he want to be approved by his friends? That was part of the reason he writes in his confessions. But it did not explain why his friends, like himself, all of them as a group, should all be encouraged to do such a wrong thing. Why would the act of stealing be praiseworthy in the first place? So why do you think Augustine stole the pears? Many of you know the answer already, having read the confessions. The real reason, he says, was that I picked them that I might steal. I love nothing in it except the pleasure of taking them because the law said I could not. Augustine said that his desire to steal was awakened by society's command not to steal. It is the same thing that happens when we want to touch the wet paint because there is a sign that says don't touch the wet paint. In telling us not to do something, the law actually sets us to thinking about it and because we are rebellious people, we soon find ourselves wanting to do the very thing the law tells us not to do. So as good as the law may be, as protective as it may be, Like Augustine, we rebel because we have inherited the sinful nature of fallen Adam. And that's what Paul is talking about. Though the law reveals that which is good, our nature is that sin takes the opportunity afforded by the command and arouses our desire to exalt ourselves against the sovereign God. 
So before we leave this section, I want to address the fact that many of you are thinking that the only way that the law increases sin is by increasing our desire to sin. However, the Bible reveals another important way that the law increases sin. For example, we learn through the example of the Pharisees, namely, that we easily convince ourselves that as long as we have not sinned outwardly and visibly, that we are all right. And this especially affects us as believers. Not only do we believe and become convinced that we are all right, but because we realize that the law is good, we start creating more laws, more rules to please God. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. The subtle lie, though, of this thought is that any form of law-keeping to earn God's favor is trickery by sin. And I'll say that again. The law does not and cannot save anyone. It was given to reveal sin, to provoke sin, and to make clear our completely hopeless condition apart from Jesus Christ. We should read verses 1 through 4 of this chapter with utter joy that we have died to the law and that our bondage to a husband that could lead us nowhere has been broken. In Galatians 3, Paul asks, is the law against the promises of God? Stated another way, he asks, is the law opposed to the gospel? The answer, certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. I'll read that again because it's important. He says, if there had been a law which could have given life, if there was any possible law, any possible system, any possible set of rules that could produce life in and of themselves, truly righteousness would have been by the law. Friends, there is no possible law that God could have given that would produce life. Why? Well, what does Romans teach us? We are by nature sinful. We would transgress, we do transgress any holy law that God has given or would give. And that is why Paul concludes in Galatians 3 that the law was our tutor to actually bring us to Christ, the one who does produce life, that we might be justified by faith. And after faith has come, Paul says, we are no longer under a tutor. What does our passage say? We are no longer bound or married to the law. Does that mean the law is no longer important? Well, the Bible says the law is perfect, and it's holy and just and good. Romans 2.20 says the law possesses the very form of knowledge and truth. To say that God values his law is a gross understatement. And friends... You have to understand that the law ultimately is God's perfect nature as it would be reflected and applied in human government and society. Does God ever change? No. His nature is always the same today, yesterday, and tomorrow. Does God hate lying yesterday and today? Absolutely. Does God want us to be faithful to our spouses, does God not want us to covet? Those are all reflections of his good and holy character. The law is good. It is the very form of knowledge and truth. God loves justice. He loves righteousness. God's home in Jeremiah 57 is described as a habitation of righteousness. And you too should love the law. 
even though it is no longer your husband. David writes in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, but delights in the law of the Lord, and in fact meditates upon it day and night. So it's, it's constantly in our minds. However, what you've learned today is that if you try to rely upon God's law to save you, outside of the righteousness of Christ given to those who in faith have called upon him as Lord and Savior, if you try to remain under the law, Paul says, watch out. Verse 6 of our passage says, Now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. To the Galatians in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, that you are now trying to be made perfect by the flesh? Hopefully you see why we want to be free from the law in this sense. Not because the law is bad, but because bound as we were to the law with the nature of sin, using the law against us, we were in this never-ending cycle of ever-increasing wickedness, all leading to death before we were saved. And ultimately, as we are saved, as we will see, if we rely on that same cycle, we only produce flawed and corrupted fruit. The law can only stand, friends, as an unmoving mountain of purity and holiness crushing us under its weight if that's where we place ourselves. Now the next portion of chapter 7 is one of the most confusing passages to many in all of Scripture, so we need to take it slow. Verse 14 says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. That word translated carnal in this verse is the noun sarks, which is usually translated flesh. And flesh can refer to the physical body, or like we've seen so far in this chapter, when it's contrasted with spiritual, it refers to the sin nature. And what Paul is saying is that in his present redeemed state, he is still a creature of the flesh to some degree. If you think about that for a moment, it is true you died to sin as a child of God saved in Jesus, regenerated by the Spirit. And that's what Paul says in chapter 6. The reality is that positionally before God, you are clothed in righteousness and you bear the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, but there still remains, as verse 21 says, this evil that is present in the inward man. Paul says in verse 23, you delight in the law of God, but there is a law of your flesh that is at war with the Spirit. It wants to bring you back into captivity, and it's a tug-of-war similar to what we see Paul describe in verses 15 to 20. And that reads, starting with verse 21, I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. Friends, if there was ever such a thing as a super Christian, wouldn't we nominate Paul as a candidate? He learned from Christ, endured afflictions, appointed by the Lord to be apostle to the Gentiles. He wrote half the New Testament, and yet this is how he describes his own battle of flesh against the Spirit. 
If Paul struggled, I guarantee that you and I will struggle. And how will we do that? In a myriad of ways. But given the context of our passage this morning, I want to suggest one rather insidious way that I've already hinted at earlier. Many Christians, having been saved from bondage to the law, having died to the law, start living again as if they are married to the law. They realize that they have been made new creations, and yet they still inhabit an unperfected body, and war against a fleshly nature, and their natural thought is to subject that body to the law. No more than that, they create new systems and rules and regulations of righteousness. Do not touch, do not eat, wear this, don't wear this, don't do this, do this. They hold them up to the Lord, and they say, surely this will make me holier. And what happens? The sin nature that Paul describes in this last half of Romans 7, the one that is still present in our members until one day we are raised to perfect life in the presence of God, it seizes the opportunity and uses the very rules that you have created to produce flawed fruit. And we see that with the Pharisees. They created all sorts of new rules and sin seized the opportunity. And what did it do? It made them hypocritical. It made them self-righteous, it made them judgmental, it made them convinced of their own worthiness before God. And we do not want to repeat that error. We don't want to go back to verses 1 to 4 and put ourselves under our old husband. If you are a child of God, if his spirit dwells in you, then you have already been forgiven past, present, and future. You do not have to be re-forgiven every time you sin. The requirement of the law has been fulfilled. God's wrath has been spent. You are no longer married to the law. And although the Bible tells us to confess our sins to one another and acknowledge that we still struggle with the flesh, it tells us to walk in the Spirit. It tells us to walk in an attitude of victory. The requirement of the law has been fulfilled. You are no longer married To the law, your old husband could not take you anywhere. He could not lead you to greater righteousness. He could only point the direction like an unmoving set of railroad tracks. The law pointed you to Christ. Pointed you to righteousness, but could not take you there. Your new husband, Christ, can take you to the Father. He is the engine, if you will, that takes you home. He can wash you in the word of holiness. And that is what Paul exclaims in verse 25. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will take me? Will it be the railroad tracks? No. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I can keep polishing the tracks. I can make them shinier and brighter. I can build on them. I can make them thicker. But they will not take me to righteousness. Only one person has ever fulfilled God's law, and that is Jesus Christ. Everyone else is doomed from the start, for they are born with the sinful nature of Adam. You cannot add to the grace of Christ by adding to salvation the works of the flesh. You cannot purchase salvation by prayer or by Bible reading, by church attendance, by charitable giving, by anything, only through God's gift of faith in His Son, through calling upon the Lord 
to save you from the destruction that awaits those who continue in rebellion against him, will God ever declare you righteous? And that is for the sake of Christ, through Christ, and because of Christ. Nothing else. Only walking in the Spirit will produce good fruit. And here's where all of this has been leading. Turn the page and go to chapter 8. Because there is good news. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And the good news is, friends, Christian, child of God, you are no longer married to the law, but are free and married to Christ. And it is a time to rejoice. It is a time to realize that all has been done through him and for him. It is a time for you to be able to look at the law with new eyes, not to put yourself back under the law in the sense of trying to earn God's favor and salvation. Not to build and rebuild and and refine, but to realize and see with those eyes that this is the good and perfect nature of God. And we love it because we love Him and His love is shed abroad in us by walking in the Holy Spirit. You are free from the penetrating glare of judgment. And I tell you this so that you will not fall and keep falling into the trap of saying that I was saved, but now I've broken the law and need to be forgiven and saved all over again. I tell you this so that you will not subtly fall back into the thought that by increasing and building upon the law that you will somehow better serve the Lord and thus win His favor. That is the cycle of Romans 7. Thankfully, there are more chapters in the book. And if you find yourself there, you must move on to chapter 8. God has set you free to be married to a new husband. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the revelation of your word as it reveals sin. We thank you for the law as it has protected us. We thank you that it is the reflection of your holy character in our society that we might know what it is that is good and pleasing to you as believers reflect your character. And yet, Lord, you have made it abundantly clear at the same time that there is nothing in the law itself that can save us or propel us to righteousness. It can only point the direction to the one who can. And so, Lord, I pray that especially as parents that you would help us to remember that as we parent our children, that we can't just keep pointing them back to law, but we must point them to Christ. I pray that as believers, as we serve you and 
in love and, and as we delight to, to serve you ever better, that we would not place ourselves back under systems and rules and regulations as if those will make us more holy and more worthy of your favor. And at the same time, Lord, I pray that we would not be like the antinomians who reject law altogether and say, here we are, saved by grace, and we can do whatever we want, that grace might be abounding ever more. And you've already answered that through Paul. Father, help us through all these things, all these difficult points and principles in these chapters to be directed ultimately to walk in your spirit, to love your law, but to walk in your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.